0: This is Truth with Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 18. This portion of Matthew is filled with the teachings of Jesus. Among the many topics he covers, Jesus took the time to explain his value system for interpersonal relationships. Today, we're going to hear about the kind of care Jesus, the Good Shepherd, has for his flock, and the kind of relationship that should exist between the sheep of his flock. It's the opposite of our instincts, but it's the ideal to which we should aspire. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre.
1: If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. As you know, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew now, verse by verse, for a couple of years now, and we have come to another one of those didactic portions that I'm calling the prescriptions of our majestic Savior, which means that these are things that Jesus prescribes to his people. This is something we are supposed to do, very application-focused here. But here is relational care according to Jesus' value system. Matthew 18, verses 7 through 14. He says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now remember the context of this. The disciples came to Jesus Christ. They were bickering. They were competing for greatness according to the world's value system and asking Jesus to point out the Navy SEAL team of apostles to say, which which ones are going to be the greatest? In your kingdom. And therefore, Jesus presents that value system. We look last time in verses one through six at the childlikeness that he expects from his people. And now we're going to talk about Christ like holiness. The fact that you and I are stewards of one another's holiness and godliness. In other words, we need to make sure that we pursue, protect, and preserve one another's godliness at all costs. We don't cause each other to stumble, we encourage one another to live godly lives, to walk with God closely, and we do everything we can in our power to encourage one another to do that. So in order to understand that whole system of relational care for one another according to Christ's standard, first I want to show you the reality of a cursed universe in verse 7 the first part of that verse. And in order to understand that, we need to go back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, when the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after God created the universe in six days, you will remember he pronounced the seventh day, the day of rest, not because he was tired. It's someone who is omnipotent, doesn't need to rest from anything. He sanctified it and set the example for us. But every element of creation, every day of creation, he pronounced good. Now, It wasn't until he created a man and women according to his likeness and image that he pronounced the creation very good. And the reason for that is because now with image bearers in the scene, creation was then complete. Adam and Eve were not all knowing; they were not omniscient because they had to learn. God gave them instructions. He said, "You are to multiply the earth," because presumably they did not know how to do that or that they had the responsibility to do that. They had to be given instructions on how to care for the garden. But they were sinless. In that state, their bodies did not experience death or decay or corruption of any kind. They were meant to live forever in an environment without sickness, sorrow or corruption or death. Then the first man disobeyed God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil against the divine command. Our first parents really decided to live independently from the Creator. They fell into the temptation of the devil who said to the woman, according to Genesis 3 verses 4 through 5, "'You will surely not die.'" For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, use the same tactic that he has been using for all of these, uh, these years, all of the, the centuries. Attack the word of God. The word of God is not true. God is lying to you. He's been very effective at that since that day. And the reason he said that is because in the previous chapter, God told Adam, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And then comes Satan and says, you will not die. What the serpent did not tell Eve, however, was that the original sin would bring a curse to the universe and would introduce death and sin and decay and corruption. Now, true that they did not die on the spot. But from that moment, they ate that fruit. Their bodies started to decompose and deteriorate and eventually they made it to the grave as we know the story. But the most devastating consequence for the universe was the fact that that act of sin introduced a curse to the entire human race, the entire human experiment. Then in seed form, which means, church, that you and I were in Adam in that day, in seed form. We were in the loins of Adam. In fact, uh, the Greek word for seed is literally sperm. We were in Adam on that day and therefore none of us escaped the corruption of sin except with one person in the entire human race. And that person is Jesus Christ because God made sure that he bypassed the natural conception so that he would be born of a virgin and therefore not inherit the sin of his parents. His adopted father, his natural mother. So sin entered the world through Adam. Paul explains that. When he says, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. None of us are exempt from sin, really, according to Romans 5 verse 12, because of the curse until God establishes the new heavens and the new earth. So in order to pursue, protect, and preserve one another's godliness, we need to understand the reality of a cursed universe. Sin is all around us. Sin is inescapable. But we should also understand, number two, the reproach of a corrupt humanity. The second part of verse 7, all the way through verse 14. Which means that although Christians must acknowledge the presence and lament sin, we must never use its reality as an excuse for causing it. As an excuse to say, well, I guess I'm a sinner. It is a sinful universe. I'm just going to wallow in the mud of sin. That is not the point. Because Christ says, woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. In other words, you don't want to be the agent of sin. You don't want to be the one responsible for causing other believers to sin. That is serious business. Until God promotes us to a glorified existence, whether through natural death, at which point, if you're a believer in Christ, the moment you breathe your last, you will be in the presence of God immediately, in a state of sinlessness, That's your redemption, the Bible says, waiting for the glorification of your body. Or if that day happens through the transformation that will take place in the day of rapture, it could happen today, it could happen a hundred years from now, we do not know. We will continue to sin. That's just the reality. Woe to the world because it is inevitable that we will run into sin. You will never be sinless until the day of your glorification. But you can sin less. Therefore, you cannot use the excuse, well, I guess I'm a sinner. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Well, John says, 1 John 1, 18, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Therefore, we know that we are sinners. We will continue to sin. Our sinful nature is still in us. We still have a flesh that cries out for prominence in our lives. But in verse 9, he says, the very next verse, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the good news for the believers. We can always go back to the cross and say, Lord, uh, you have paid for this sin on on the cross. Please forgive me. I repent of my sin. I don't want to live like that. I know that the world is a sinful place. It's a cursed universe. Sin is all around us, and I know sin is in me. Well, Paul says, the good that I desire I don't do, but the evil that I don't desire I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. We all identify with that. But God grants full pardon of transgressions. He's always going to forgive you when you come to Him in repentance, although He may not release us from the temporal consequences of sin. For example, if you decide to betray your spouse and commit adultery, sure God will forgive you if there's repentance, if there's a process of restoration there, but that restoration will take some time. Trust has been broken, and it's hard to rebuild. Same thing with you when you commit any other type of sin, if you commit a crime. Sure, God will forgive you. You're not going to be kicked out of heaven because of a sin that you commit. But then society now, is uh, you will have to answer to that. But in this scene here, Jesus alerts believers against enticing someone else to commit sin. He says, woe to them. He laments the fact that from time to time, you and I will cause others to sin. And that is a tragedy. Therefore, church, the prospect of causing the fall of a brother or sister in Christ should frighten us. We should be terrified of the opportunity or, or the possibility of causing someone else to sin. But you may be thinking, Pastor, I would never do that. And I am sure, my friend, that none of us would purposefully sabotage the walk of a fellow believer in Christ. We wouldn't do that on purpose. But let me remind you one more time, you've heard me say this, never, ever, ever, underestimate your ability to commit the most horrific sin. Because the day you say, I will never do that, is the day you are stepping on a spiritual banana peel. And you will fall on your face. Also, never underestimate your ability to satisfy your flesh. Now, we would never plan to break the heart of a spouse. No one enters into marriage saying, hmm, how can I ruin this thing? How can I ruin my reputation? How can I break the heart of this family? Or no pastor comes to a church saying, How can I drive the place to the ditch? But the point is that we should never underestimate the power of our love affair with self. Did you know you have been madly in love with yourself since the day you were born? Whose reputation are you ready to preserve at all costs? Whose needs do you meet on a daily basis? Whose innocence are you ready to proclaim? You love yourself and I love myself way too much. That is represented clearly in how the disciples were relating to one another and Christ. Instead of building each other up, they're saying, I am the first. You are last. I'm first. I'm number one here. I'm the sidekick. You are my mediocre helper. So because we are madly in love with ourselves, the relentless pursuit of our own greatness, like the disciples were personifying here, will impair our judgment and potentially cause you to manipulate situations To satisfy your desire for intimacy, for notoriety, for satisfaction, for comfort, and even for vengeance. Listen to Jesus' evaluation of that convoluted value system. Woe to the one who creates a stumbling block. Verse 7. He laments it. He says, I am grieved by the fact that people, my people, sometimes cause stumbling blocks. There's a better solution. There's a better system that he offers here. There's a better way. And we're going to look at that better way now in three points. We're going to talk about the solution, the strategy, and the standard because that's how Jesus presents it. Let's talk about the solution, verses 8 through 9. What is this all about when he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. And you say, wait a minute, pastor. We are literalists. We interpret the Bible at face value, but I'm confused here. What is he talking about? And friend, I am glad you asked. Because this is something very common that you and I do on a daily basis. We use hyperbolic language. This is a hyperbole. This is an exaggeration meant to cause an impact. This is a figure of speech. Mutilation is not meant to be taken literally. Simply because of the fact that crippled people also sin. As bad as you and me. The visually impaired can also commit sin. In other words, you can cut off all your limbs and still sin because sin is in the heart. The Bible says that Christ is the only one who takes away the sin of the world. So he's the only solution. So cutting yourself off is not the solution. So clearly, this is a figure of speech that is meant to be taken figuratively. Now... Well, the Bible says here, instead of body mutilation, Jesus is prescribing severance. That's the principle of severance. You cut ties with whatever causes you to sin, with whatever causes you to want to get other people to sin. That's the idea. Severance of relationships, things, or whatever. That will cause you to promote or consummate the sinful act. This is not hard to understand. For example, if you have a track record of contention of being sinfully critical. You don't need to literally cut your tongue off because that's going to solve nothing. And you'll need that organ to praise God anyway, and you need that organ to taste and to talk to other people. Rather, you are to make a radical commitment to only speak kindly to others and to pursue peace. And in order to make that a radical choice, you ask a friend, a godly friend, to hold you accountable for that. In other words, instead of cutting your tongue off, you shut your mouth. That's it. It's a radical decision. What else should you eliminate completely from your life? Or sever completely in order to avoid causing stumbling blocks for others or for yourself? Are there some relationships that you need to eliminate? That you need to cut off ties immediately? Not tomorrow, but like a band-aid, you rip it off. That's the radical aspect of the prescription here that Jesus is saying. You are to do it now. Not, not a gradual process, but you cut, cut those things now. Now, you may have to sever some relationships that cause unnecessary temptation. But before you do that, I need to give you a disclaimer. If you are married, you do not have permission from God to divorce an unsaved spouse. Likewise, it would be extremely unloving to shun a family member who is an unbeliever because you might be the only light that that person will see, the only influence for Christ that that person will have. So here is something that is more practical that we can use. Ladies, if the boyfriend is pressuring you into premarital intimacy, the dude has to go. Understand that? He's got to go. Guys, likewise, if the girlfriend is doing the same She needs to go. In fact, dating an unbeliever will cause you unnecessary temptation to become unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. So sever the relationship. Cut ties immediately. That is what Jesus is saying. The idea of severance. So that's the solution. But here's the strategy. Verses 10 through 11 that he gives. He instructs his disciples to not despise other believers. When he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, he is referring to believers in Christ that the child illustrates. Because he says in verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. Toddlers can't believe in anything. They don't have the mental capacity to, to believe. So he's saying believers who are like children, all of us, we like to think of ourselves as big deal. God thinks of us as little ones. So he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, you're in big trouble with me. And in here, verse 10, he says, "See," in a form of a warning, he presents the strategy and says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And the Greek word that he used for the verb of despising is thinking little of, talking down to, scorn, disregard, neglect, all of the above. The warning was particularly relevant to the disciples because in the process of competing for prominence, and greatness according to the world. They were despising one another. They were stepping on each other to say, I'm number one. So Jesus says, don't do that. In the process of competing for greatness and wanting to be great, you will despise other believers. I don't want you to do that. That's not how we operate in the body of Christ. That's how the world operates. We must think little of ourselves. That's what the Bible says. Let's not think of ourselves too highly. Or more highly than we should. In fact, Philippians 2 verse 3 says we should consider others more important than ourselves. So my friend, the way to relate to one another in the body of Christ is you place yourself at the bottom of the pile. And you talk to the person next to you as if that person is the most important person in the world at that time when you're talking to him or to her. That is the value system that Jesus presents here. That is how we care for one another. We don't look down on each other. We don't talk down to each other. Our culture despises dissenters. We don't need to do that. Our culture looks down on divergent opinions, cancels anyone who disagrees with the popular narrative, and censors truth. Believers must never operate by that system if we want to honor God. Because Jesus says, greatness is found in humility. You want to be great, do you? Then... Humble yourself, like that child, and make clear that you are totally dependent on God, that you need Him for the basic necessities of life, like a child, articulates that in tears. So let me list some examples of how believers lapse into this convoluted system. Again, remember, we know it already by heart. No one needs to teach you how to operate by the world's value system. How to operate by wanting to be first. Because that already comes in your sinful nature and in my sinful nature. And the world makes sure that we are encouraged to do it. Number one, you look down on your fellow believers who vote differently than you. Number two, we speak condescendingly to or about fellow believers who have a different view on non-essential issues of the faith. Number three... We despise fellow believers. We violate what Christ is telling us to do here when we walk away from a brother or a sister who has been caught in sin, whether publicly or privately. Let's understand Christ's explanatory clause in verse 10 here when he says, I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father. So what is this all about? Is, is Jesus saying that every believer has a dedicated guardian angel? I don't think that's the case, although the Bible says very clearly that God does assign angels to the care of believers. For example, the author of the book of Hebrews confirms that angels are ministering spirits. He says in Hebrews 1 verse 14, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So my friend, if you are a born again believer in Christ, you have inherited salvation and therefore you have angels serving you in this future realm, you don't even see them. Now it doesn't mean you have one pet Angel, angel so-and-so that you can name or or you, you can pray to. That's idolatry. We don't do that. And I don't think you have one angel dedicated to your care exclusively. I think they take turns. Why? Because Jesus says here, they see the face of my Father in heaven continually. Now, you remember several characters in the Bible who were terrified because they looked at the face of God. And the 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 reason why they were terrified is because they're sinful. And they realize their sinfulness against the backdrop of the holiness of God. And what Jesus is saying here, these are holy angels. They They interact with God face to face because there is no sin in them. And they are assigned to the care of believers in Christ. So they interact with him on a regular basis to discuss your care, to discuss my care, conference style. He loves you that much. He cares about you that much. Should we not replicate that care for one another? Should we lower the level? Why would we do that? If we want to imitate the heart of our God, the heart of our Savior, why would not we not replicate this level of zeal and care for one another? If you love Him, you will love the people He loves. Now, verse 11, I want you to know, does not appear in the early manuscripts. But I want you to know that that sentence is in Luke 19, verse 10, verbatim. So that sentence is inspired by God. It's probably a scribal error, so that shouldn't undermine your trust in the Bible in any way because that is a phrase that is inspired by God. So most likely the scribe who was copying the manuscript added the sentence by mistake. He was looking at the Gospel of Luke when he should have been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, probably with the scrolls all unrolled in his table. But uh, again, what I want to point out to you is after presenting the solution and the strategy, we'll finish with the standard. And that is in verses 12 and 14. We're talking about Christ's value system for relational care of one another. And he uses a parable to explain that standard. And in this parable, Jesus presents himself as the shepherd. And the reason for that, church, is because he is the good shepherd. In John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So that's the standard. We should be able to lay down our lives for one another. Not lay down our lives for our own greatness. Because that's what Jesus... That's the heart of Christ. In verse 14 of chapter 10 of John, he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. My own know me. So friend, when you stumble upon sin, whether by bad influence or by bad decision making or both, and you don't deal with it, you are going to stray from the flock. That's a fact. If you don't address sin in your life, you are naturally going to stay away or you're going to drift from the flock in order to appease a guilty conscience. I don't want you to miss the truth that Jesus unveils in this parable here. Crucial to our understanding of relational care according to his value system. We must pursue at all costs each other's restoration. Not punishment. Restoration. We, rest- we are in the business of restoring people. Not punishing them. Not stepping on them when they're down. That's easy to do. And that's cowardly. When. Not if. When you witness the fall of a fellow believer, you come alongside the rest of us and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, according to what Paul says, Galatians 6, verse 1, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And church, that law is very clearly here. Verse 10, do not despise any of these little ones. Do not despise a fellow believer. So that's how we relate to one another. How That's how we care for one another in the body of Christ. We're committed to that process here at Grace Baptist Church. We do it imperfectly because we're imperfect people, starting with your own pastor. But the point is, that's the goal, is to honor Scripture at all costs, even if it costs us criticism, and it has. Even if it costs us, uh, I don't know, popularity, we don't care about that, we're after the approval of God. All of us know a fellow believer who is in this condition. Licking his wounds or her wounds because of sin. Guilt, shame, fear, anxiety. There's a fear of coming back. There's the fear of embarrassment. The fear of being judged. The fear of being looked down upon. You be the rescuer. So reach out to that person and act in Christ-like holiness. And preserve and protect one another's holiness.
0: If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. You'll also find links to our books and information on how you can contribute to spreading the gospel around the world. That's truthwithgrace.org. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it. Or edited in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.